What is up, fam? As you've probably caught on, this mini season is going to look and feel different than our standard episodes of WTH or My Friends up to. I was already putting a pause on airing my new season until the COVID crisis had allowed things to return to some kind of normal, but this could not wait. Our country in the last week saw an unspeakable horror as George Floyd was murdered in broad daylight and as bystanders could do nothing but watch in absolute terror. When I heard about this news, I was shocked that something so blatant could be carried out. Unfortunately for the black community, they were horrified, but they were not surprised. This is a world that they face every single day, a world where it's not safe to jog through your own neighborhood, a world where sleeping in your home is dangerous, a world where being denied access or worried about looking like, in air quotes, a thug are commonplace. It's not fair. And in my own whiteness, I have sadly been blind to the injustices the black community has faced and blind to my own privilege that I'm visually carrying with me in every interaction and every circumstance in my life. This has to change. I was at first unclear how I could meaningfully add noise to this conversation on racism in America and not come across as woke or progressive because honestly, this is not my struggle. And I will never fully understand the deep psychological and practical ramifications of being looked at differently or as less than. But what I can do is create conversation. I can learn. I can push myself to grow and to stay in the uncomfortable and unjust world that has been violently clear in the past two weeks for all Americans. To do this, I've decided to partner with my friend Daniela Smallwood to hear her own experiences and simply learn. In these two episodes, I hope you'll listen to, I'm hoping to find more understanding and in turn, a more proportionate compassion for my brothers and sisters in the black community. It's literally the absolute least I could do. And I hope these episodes inspire you to search your heart and your own life for ways you can make changes to right the imbalance of justice that we as white people have been allowed to ride through our entire lives. Without further ado, here we go. That's an interesting segue. I guess I guess first I should say uh thanks for wanting to talk to me today. Yes, anytime. anytime. Yeah. Yeah, I I was trying to think about who I could have like a productive and then also faith-based conversation with and top of the list got got my first choice. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Well, technically, Oprah's reps didn't get back to me. But. You know, I, I will have Oprah's people call your people. How Thank that? you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, but it's interesting. I I feel like I like what you're talking about, how it kind of like fell to the wayside. Mm-hmm. I feel like that maybe is a good starting point for like how we had this huge push for civil rights in the 60s. And then I think on on my end, which again, I'm talking to you because I don't know anything, but you know, like I, I feel like some of that might've slid to the wayside because people got complacent or people assumed that the world was getting better. I know personally, a lot of times I think that I'm doing good, but what am I actually doing to help the world or to like further progress? And it, I don't know, I've been grappling with that a lot, especially over the last week. 
No, I think you make a good point. And I've had this conversation um, with my sister and uh, my nieces and nephews because we have kind of like these family conversations and they all stem around politics, which is the way we were raised as well. And one of the conversations, because my sister kind of said that, like she felt like, you know, we had kind of gotten all comfortable, like all of us, black, white and different, that we had all kind of gotten comfortable with where we were and we were just kind of sliding by and really kind of she was feeling like maybe our generation and, you know, I'm 39, I'll be 40, she's 42, that Mm -hmm. our generation, um, that we didn't really stand up and continue to fight for our rights. And the, the thing that I submitted to her for introspection is let's look at a burn patient, right? So a burn patient, a burn patient undergoes a ton of trauma when they have like third degree burns. And so when they have those types of burns and injuries and trauma, you can't go in and just heal it all at once. Right? So what happens is, and it's ugly and it's painful and it hurts. Like it literally hurts. And I can remember an episode of Grey's Anatomy where there was the girl that um, Seattle. Yes, I love Grey's Anatomy. I'm actually rewatching Grey's Anatomy right now. Oh, that's my so escape good. from the world. <laughs> and so that's a good one. And there's this episode where the girl she had gotten burns. She had these really really bad burns, and then she was then her neighbor next to her had the burns, and the girl was like, "Look." Bite down on the, you know, find something to bite down on and grip tight and just bite down, you know, and basically just scream, um, scream it out because it's going to hurt. And she was like, it's going to hurt. And um, and so and then the doctor's like, yes, it is going to be painful and it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, but over time, it's going to it's going to start to heal. And then so what they do is they, you know, they do all those things with those burns and then it kind of, you know, starts to heal and then they give it some time before they go back in and do the process again right and so I feel I feel like that's what happens when we're leading change and we're dealing with any type of trauma whether it's on a personal level or deep-seated uh, trauma like what we have because we're dealing with the trauma of a nation and of a people yeah and so of generations yes. of generations and so that it can't i mean we can't handle it like physically like the same way as the body can't handle that you know there we're not set to handle that so i believe that we had that civil rights movement and there was a time and a season in those 60s where it was really about uh focusing on protesting and it was focused on you know really bringing things to the forefront and bringing them out and then doors began to happen and as we went into the 70s we really started to deal with more of the um exposing the world to what would it look like if uh, blacks had equal rights or had had more rights and then yeah. then we begin to move into a phase of starting to deal with legislation and starting to put different things in place to get some legislation and then we kind of got a little bit of a lift right so we have a small lift but the lift is definitely not where it needs to be. And I think that we have gotten back to the place where we have to go to the next level of healing. Yeah and I I mean, just being exposed to this in the last week, week and a half, like I kind of challenged myself a few days ago to kind of like stay in the uncomfortable mindset that it's giving me. And like, it's hard reading about all this stuff, much less it happening to me and it affecting me. And like, like, I don't 
I don't want to keep reading about it. I want to be able to escape from it. But that's exactly the point, I think. Like, I can, but right. I shouldn't be able to, and it shouldn't be a thing. And Right. Yeah. And that's that's the tough part. And, you know, when it's not your reality, yeah. you, you don't really think about it. You don't consider it unless you're put in a situation where you have to consider it. And, um, you know, when we look at the fiber of the nation, I mean, we have to we have to acknowledge the truth of what it is. The fiber of the nation from its onset was built with racism. We were brought over here as black people. We were not people. We were brought over here as property stolen property on top of that like we were we were stolen property for the most part so we came here stolen treated as property um developed as property everything that when we're talking about the the institution of the constitution when we talk about the development of the police force in itself the entire inception of it was now we have to have a way to keep this property in place since they're not our slaves anymore. And so we're looking at systems and we're kind of, we're looking at the fruit of it. And I think that's what people are missing. We are seeing the fruit of something that is very deeply rooted. And until we can acknowledge as a nation that look from the inset of this country, these people were not these people were not human to us. And even with our counterparts who also experienced racism, I think the difference is, and sometimes people don't want to acknowledge this or be honest about this, is that the difference is we were stolen to be labor to build this, right? Whereas yeah. some of the other people who were here weren't necessarily stolen, you know what I mean? Or enslaved. And not to say they weren't enslaved in other places. I'm not saying that by any means, but, um, but when you look at the history of the U.S., it's a lot different, right? So it's a lot different than your person who maybe came from another country and built their life here. That wasn't our. That wasn't how we got here as Black Americans. We didn't make a decision to come here. Yeah, this and I mean, good, good Lord, look at white privilege from day one. We don't have to do our own work, right? And we're getting free work on stolen land, right? And it's. So when you look at the things happening today, I, I totally get what you're saying. It's the things that are happening today are really bad, but they're also not unexpected because of the society that we've built to allow things like this to happen. And I think, yeah, that that's more of the stuff that's just overwhelming because it's like, well, how do you change a system that's, I don't know, 400 years old. Exactly. It, and you, you have to reform it. It hurts my head. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that can be done but to reform it. And that's that's been the problem. Like even the civil rights era, which did move us forward to a certain degree, it, it, it was a Band-Aid. The, the truth of the matter is, and I think that what we're experiencing around the world is we're in a season where God is exposing injustice. He is exposing where things are unrighteous and he is putting us in a position where we have to face these things and make a change. We cannot repent for things that are not in front of us. And so for some people, it is an exposure moment. For some people, it is an acceptance moment because some people know, like, you know, there are plenty of white people that understand that racism still exists, but because it doesn't impact their everyday world, they prefer to kind of push it down or brush it off to the side because it's not their reality. 
But imagine living in a world where you are constantly having to censor yourself. Like, I will be honest with you. I literally, I will sit out on my back deck and I might be having a conversation about what's going on in the world right now. And I will find myself going into my house because I don't want anybody to say anything. That's not a conversation that most white people think about. When I leave my house to go to the store, I think about, well, what do I have on? Is what I have on acceptable? Am I going to be treated a certain way because I'm not dressed up? Like the concept of Sunday's best. We joke all the time, right? It's a running joke that, you know, white people don't really do a Sunday's best. You know, like y'all truly embrace casual Sunday. It took a long time for the black church to get to a point where we could wear. Like I remember it being a thing when we got to wear like jeans to church. The Sunday's best was not about giving our best to God. The Sunday's best was really rooted in we have to, first of all, during slavery times, they would dress us up when they took us downtown and things like that because you're showing off your property. Let's start yeah. there. So you're showing off your property. You're saying, well, look at the property that I have. Because I might want to sell my property later on. So I've got to make sure it has its best face forward. Because we want everyone to know that, you know, the Smallwood Plantation has the best of the best. Hmm. Remember, we have to go back to that. We were looked at as property. And so this mindset began. So so then we begin to adapt that, that in order to go out and to be even I can't even say it's to be accepted, but to go out and to, you know, try to mitigate, mitigate um, harassment or losing your life or anything happening to you, then you have to wear your Sunday's best. And yeah, and it gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. I didn't even honestly, I didn't even realize that I had adopted it until I was living in Louisiana. And we get ready to go somewhere. And I am like, I'm always dressed, like dressed to the nine, always heels, suit jacket, always dressed, always. I can confirm. Together, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't too much go outside looking rough and raggedy. And I remember one time I had gone to, to Zumba. So I had leggings on, tennis shoes, and t shirt. And my daughter was with me. And I was like, oh man, I wanted to go to the mall. And she's like, well, why can't we go? And I was like, well, I'm not dressed. And she's like, mom, for real? Like, are you serious? And I was like, come on, let's go. And so we go and literally we go to Dillard's and doesn't take more than five minutes before I'm followed around the, around the, around the store. I'm asked a million times, what do I need? What am I getting? Um, you know, I'm being, you know, I'm basically being, you know, profiled for stealing because I'm black. So, you know, God forbid I'm black in Louisiana. I surely can't make enough money to shop at Dillard's or Macy's or something like that. And, and so, and then I remember like when we walked away, my response was, this was my response. See, this is what I'm telling you, Heather. You can't go outside the house and not be dressed up because people don't treat you the same and they don't treat you right. And Instead of me being outraged at the fact that that's the world that I live in, I'm outraged that I let you talk me into going to the store and being treated this way because like that's how far down it's it's come. Like you're you're self policing, yes. and society is is doubling down on it. Yes, and you have at no chance. Time. 
at all yeah. times, like at all times I will, you know, and I only speak, I will speak from my experience. Like at all times I'm, I'm censoring how I say things. I censor the way that I talk I, because, you know, our slang and, you know, we've both lived in the South and in the South, it is not unacceptable to say y'all at work. Right. But if I was to really let my guard down and talk the way I talk around my family at work, I would be perceived as uneducated. I would be perceived as ghetto. I would be perceived as less than. So I have to do this thing that we call the code switch. Have you ever heard of that before? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. So there's this term that we call, we call it code switching. I'm learning. Yeah. And okay. So there's a thing that we call, it's called code switching. And okay. most of your black professionals learn to master it. Most, most of your people who are in professional um, outlines and not even professional outlines, sometimes just their everyday life. So we kind of create this, what we call proper mannerisms and ways to talk and say things in order to not be perceived a certain way by the rest of the world. Because like we talk about things like, like, you know, Ebonics and things like that. Um, we've been taught to be ashamed of the dialects that have come out of our history and out of our culture. And it's unacceptable. And so because we feel that way, I might be with my friends and, you know, we're talking and we're using our colloquialisms and things like that. And it's all good. Phone rings. Like I, I literally I can talk to my sister. Girl, let me tell you what happened yesterday. And then we went down to the street and then we girl. Yes, girl. I'm having my just being who I am. Right. Phone yeah. rings. Good afternoon. This is Daniela. How might I help you? I've got to take. Oh my god! I've got to take my voice up a couple octaves so you don't feel like I'm being an aggressive black woman. These are the things that go through our head. Like, let me raise, let me raise the pitch of my voice so I'm not perceived as an angry black woman, so that I'm not being perceived as being aggressive, so so that I'm not coming off as combated, even if I'm just in a good mood. See, it's so wild when you say it like that. And I've never, of course, I've never thought about it like that, unfortunately. But it's like, I come up here to Seattle and people are like, oh, you're from the South, aren't you? Like, and they like, and the the dialect or the accent, you know, like that's kind of endearing. Yes. Or you hear like a British person talk and you're like, oh, oh, they're British. Like, that's awesome. Or, you know, like it shows their heritage. And yet the black community with their heritage has been like, Oh, this means this equals bad. Don't show this to other people. It's not cool. And that's, uh, yeah, it's just another example of like right. how that they're systematically shut you down. And it's small things that we don't think it's about. It's so small. And so when, yeah. we, when we get to the big things, and I think that that's why people don't understand why people are tearing stuff up right now and are upset because you're talking about decades of trauma being passed down. There are scientific studies that show that um, PTSD can even be passed down through the womb. Oh, we absolutely. We don't think yeah. about that. Um, yeah. I am terrified of dogs. Most people who know me know I'm terrified of dogs. I have been terrified of dogs my entire life. And people would always say, have you been bit by a dog? And I could never understand like, I couldn't understand it. I could not remember a time that I wasn't afraid of dogs. My oldest sister, she's 13 years older than me. And she said, oh, yeah, I can remember the first time we realized she was scared of dogs. We were out at an event and there was just like a dog nearby. And she I was, she said I was like maybe 
three. And she said, I just started climbing up her till I got to her top and just screamed. Like I have got, I have jumped on top of cars getting away from dogs. I have pushed myself between the screen door and a regular door to get away from dogs. I have tore up things to get away from dogs. Never having been bit, never having had a personal bad experience my entire life. Um, and then, you know, I started to read about things and I started to, to understand that PTSD can be passed down through the womb. Well, yesterday, somebody posted an article uh, where my great great aunt had wrote an open letter to the newspaper in the city um, that we are from about the police force unjustifiably loosing police dogs in uh. neighborhoods on the black people. And wow. so, and we joke all the time, like, you know, as time has progressed, there are more black people that have dogs and things like that. But it is less, it is, it is less common in the black community for people to have dogs and let it be pets and stuff like that or whatever than it is with our, you know what I'm saying? With, with white people. Um, Absolutely. Those are just things that we don't think about over time that, we have had to adapt. So just imagine how exhausting. You spend eight to 10 hours at work a day. And unless you work in, you know, maybe a very small percentage of people work in environments where it's where everyone looks like them. So majority of your working force, you're spending eight to 10 hours in an environment where you have to pull back, Calm down. Don't talk so loud. Don't be so expressive. You know, um, where you're having to what we call code switch all day long. Then you get off work. You still got a code switch when you go to the store. You still got a code switch. As long as you are operating in a white world, you we we have to do that in order to not draw or and, and that's what it's been like to not draw attention to ourselves. So imagine like you go most of your day and you don't get to let your hair down and just simply be who you are until eight nine o'clock and god forbid you live in a white neighborhood you better still tone it down even where you live yeah it's exhausting yeah which which again is crazy i feel like i'm saying this is crazy <laughs> a lot okay. but um you know so so i live in seattle now mm -hmm. but and i and seattle is actually really like i don't think i think there's maybe like five to ten percent black population but when we worked together right we worked in columbus georgia you lived in atlanta georgia <laughs> like it, it's like like y'all are the the dominant race like mm -hmm. you had majority of people and yet you still felt all of these like micro aggressions and like uh things hitting you every day all day during work where you were working with the majority black people and it's it's unbelievable. It doesn't. It, I don't know. Because like, it, how can you not feel safe in spite of all the other things going your way? And I think that's just like a testament to how bad it is. Right. And, and, and that's the thing that, you know, I think that sometimes privilege doesn't lend itself to. So it's like you don't understand. You don't understand it. And then to be told if you comply, if if you wear your Sunday's best, if you use your right, proper voice, if you be a good girl and a good boy and follow the instructions and do what 
they want you to do and be who they want you to be, then you will survive. And even like in my generation, like where we talk about, you know, like my generation wasn't like, a, you know, we were told, like, if you get your degree and go get yes. a good job and you move out to the suburbs, you can have everything that white people have. And so that's what that's what we focused on. Right. So we see that. Don't you think that was like a. That's another one of those things where it's like the devil made you complacent. Right. And so we, that's what we did. We're like, okay, that's what it is. We're not educated enough. That's what it is. We don't have professional jobs. We're not in this. We're not doing that. So then we go and we do those things. And then we, and, and this is the, this is the funny conversation that we laugh about within our family is the dynamics are so different between how I was raised and how my daughter was raised and how my nieces and nephews were raised. So I was raised in a neighborhood where we were predominantly black and Hispanic. Um, and not that there weren't white people there, but that was definitely not our world at school. Yeah. We were about 80%, you know, black and Hispanic, 20% white. Um, and so it was a little bit different environment. Um, I can remember, like, I literally can remember being in high school and we were going to a football game and there was one particular school that the racism was really bad. They were known for having the KKK. Like, we got instructions. Like, the instructions were, look, everybody hear me and hear me well. Best behavior. Don't say nothing extra. Don't play your instrument. Play a football game, get on a bus, go home. We're not stopping at like McDonald's. Beyond reproach. Right. We're not stopping at McDonald's. Don't say anything. Compose yourself. Literally. And be ready. Because if we win this game, it's gonna be a problem. And I can remember winning, and I can remember things being thrown at the bus. This is in the 90s. Yeah. And I can remember things being thrown at the bus and the N-words flying and the bus driver like hauling booty to get us back to the city. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, you know, my world was a little bit different because I was in, you know, more black neighborhoods. I had more opportunities to kind to somewhat be not quite be, but somewhat be a little bit more. But we also that meant that we saw a lot more poverty. You know, we saw a lot more poverty, a lot more things that, you know, you don't want to grow up in. So me and a lot of my friends worked hard. Like I've got friends I went to school with that came from the projects in the gutter that are doctors and lawyers and scientists and doing like really crazy dope stuff. So we got these great jobs. You know, we're making good money. We're getting into six figures. We're moving our kids into the, you know, into the suburbs. We're putting them in yeah. private school, these special schools. And we never think about the fact that now we've taken our, our black blue babies and put them in a classroom where they are the only black baby there. And we never thought about even the things that they went through because it wasn't our experience. So I can't teach you, you know, I can teach you how to be the only black person in a work environment, but I don't know what it feels like to be the only black kid at school until I moved to Georgia. That was a whole nother story. And, but by that point I was a teenager, but like as a little kid, I don't know what that feels like. Like my daughter was, there were two black kids in elementary school. It was two black girls. Now, mind you, I'm a fair skinned black woman and so and my daughter is a fair-skinned black girl as well so she's fair-skinned probably looks a little bit more like the mixed kids than she necessarily does the black girl it was only two of them in the whole in the whole grade you you, you got a couple you know a hundred something kids two and i never thought 
I never understood or even thought about what her experience was like. And then as she got older, she began to kind of be more vocal about the fact that like, you know, not knowing where to fit in, not, um, you know, being exhausted with having to answer all the questions for the black people. And for a while it was all good too. That's the other thing. So she had all these white friends and, you know, and, 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 and like one of my nieces is going through that even now because all of her friends are white. All of her guys that she's dated have been white. I think she's might have dated one black guy. So like that's her world. Yeah. And then now as things are happening and things are boiling over, she's expecting them to stand up for her because you're supposed to be my friends. Right. And she's realizing that while they were your friends, they never understood. And the things that they have said and the way that they're disagreeing and and she's just like, how could you say you love me and you don't love my people? And so now we have a generation of people who are also dealing with that. Like, I grew up with these people all my life only to find out that they don't like us. And I have to imagine, like, in that case, it's got to be like a visceral, like in your body reaction because the trauma and everything that your parents and your grandparents felt that is in your body is catching up to them and it's got to be tough yeah i mean for when people when people's voice are taking away from them you know think about a kid when a kid is little and they don't know how to talk yet and they can't communicate like all you can do is kind of cry and like because you can't commute, you can't get it out. And so right. living in a world where you can't really be honest about the experiences that you have, about the things that are going on. I mean, look at the list of captured on video police brutality experiences that it has taken for us to get to this point. I mean, you can't deny it. It's, it's horrifying. It, it is, but but it's, it's unspeakable. But it's been it's been glossed over. I'm still seeing people with arguments of, um, well, it was just one time, or you know, like just excuses. And it's like at some point you have to accept responsibility that this is just it's wrong. Period. There's 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 no there's no comma. It's just it's wrong. Period. This is wrong. We have to fix it. Yes. We can talk about the other stuff too, but right now this is wrong and we have to fix yes. it. Yes. It doesn't yeah. mean that the other things are less important, but this is this is what's at the forefront right now. And yeah. we have to deal with it. And I think that you're right. A lot of white people are uncomfortable. Welcome to our world. I hate to say yeah. it like that, but welcome to our world. We are uh, uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> I, so, so until like, a week and a half ago, my thought about 2020 was this is the worst year to have ever happened. Like every, every month something new sucky happens and it's just getting worse and worse. And then about a week ago or a week and a half ago, I had a realization like this is exactly what needed to happen. Doesn't make it less terrible, but it's causing a lot of people to open up their eyes, me included to what has been happening to the black community for a long, long time. And it took 
all this terrible stuff, but I feel like, and I'm hopeful along with overwhelmed and sad, but hopeful that like things can start to change. And I, I feel like they are. I definitely think that we are in a place of transition globally. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that even the civil rights movement did, see, the civil rights movement made room for the women's movement, and um, which made right move, uh, which made room for later on down the road the LGBTQ. Yeah, exactly. Um, plus movement, and so. One of the things that I will say is that we lead the way uh, in movements and you're seeing people around the globe joining in. I'm giggling just a little bit because I'm seeing other countries joining in as if they don't have some of the same issues because I have black friends in some of those countries as well. But it, it may not necessarily be as much on the forefront as it is in America. Um, but I do feel like that there is a shift that God is taking us through but we have to be willing to go through the uncomfortable part. And I think what has been happening is we start to be faced with the ugly injustices that are this country, whether it is this, whether it is putting kids in cages and, you know, saying all the nonsense that we have going on here when yeah. it comes to, you know, race and inequality. Um, and we've been able to kind of like stuff it back down, right? So it's like it comes to the forefront, it hits a news cycle, we're outraged for a little bit, and then we're able to stuff it down. I feel like COVID kind of halted life and put us in a position where we got time right now. Yeah. And I don't time. think this is, uh, it feels like way more than a news cycle. It is. At least for me. It, it, yeah. it is. I, I definitely strongly feel like it is. I strongly feel like um, it It will nine times out of 10 probably get uglier before it gets prettier. But we have to endure that part. I go I go back to the, you know, example of the person with the burn unit. Like you can't go in and do plastic surgery until that's healed. Mm. So you're going to look ugly for uh, for a minute before we can come back and then actually do the beautification on the outside. And I I think at this point we have hit a boiling point where we, I I think we, I think we've hit a lid that we can't put, we can't put it back on this time. God, I hope not. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And it's not a news cycle. And I think that this is something that I hopefully I'm dealing with the rest of my life, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's the goal. I think for true equality to happen, like <clears throat> we have to do everything we can to understand your experiences so that we can then carry them in every decision that we make along with our own experience. I mean, just right now it's all about like Black Lives Matter, of course. Um, like we have to understand your experience first because it's been shut down so much. Right. Right. Not that not every other it's not that like every other experience doesn't matter. But right now we got to we got to fix it. So I have a few questions for you. Go for it. Um, so does the term or why does the term Black Lives Matter mean more right now than the phrase that a lot of people are hitting us back with, all lives matter. 
and maybe explain the difference in terms to you. Okay. So from, from my perspective, when we're saying Black Lives Matter, we are bringing attention to the fact that Black lives have not mattered, um, have not been treated as if they've mattered, if that makes sense. And yeah. um, and so it is a specific issue within the circle. So yes, all people do matter, but within the confines of all people, Black people are the people who are being gunned down for the color of their skin. We're not saying that police brutality doesn't happen to other people. And I think that's what people miss. We're not saying that police brutality doesn't happen to other people. We're not saying that um, people don't die in police custody of other colors, but they're not dying because of the color of their skin. Like, and we're just now starting to see these things, but I can, I can tell you stories of people who have been, you know, who have experienced brutality. I can even tell you personal stories with me where I have experienced profiling from police for being black and completely treated different than someone else simply because of the color of my skin, not because I did something different. Like I can remember getting pulled over for a situation. I get to court. I find out the lady sitting next to me got pulled over for the exact same thing. We were in the exact same type of situation. We both were pulled over. We both had our kids in the car. She was told, handle this, come to court, because, you, you know, and, and go on your way because your kid's in the car. I got my car told, arrested, daughter taken from me and sat down at a police precinct like she was a criminal. You tell me where the equality is, right? Oh, my God. Same situation. And, yeah. And I, and, and I remember just being like, well, <laughs> what do you do? It, it, it is what it is. And um, and so it is what it is. <laughs> we hate it. it right. And it sucks. <laughs> it, it, it sucks. And, I, and it's like, look, it's time for a change. I'm tired of saying it is what it is. It is what it is. Isn't good enough. And that's what I love about this young generation is that we have accepted toxicity. We have accepted injustice. We have accepted dysfunction. That's what I really want to say. We have accepted dysfunction um, as a norm. And learn to thrive mm -hmm. in it. And I learned that from my daughter. I can remember her going through some things and her wanting to go to therapy. And I'm like, girl, you don't need to go to therapy. And she's like, no, I want to go see somebody. And she pushed me and she pushed me. And I was like, fine, like, okay, girl, come on, let's go. And I took her to therapy. And then as I took her to therapy, it pushed me to go to therapy. And then I yeah. realized that I was dredging through life with all of this baggage and trauma and dysfunction. And I just learned how to be high, highly functional in my dysfunction. And this generation, you know, and here she was and here I was, I was passing that down to her. But when I got ready to pass that down to her, she was like, no, ma'am, we're not doing this. I'm not going through life being highly functional in a dysfunctional world. And that's the generation we have now. So what they're There's a saying, better way. Right. So what change they, the world. Exactly. They're saying, no, <laughs> this is not OK. Why have y'all accepted that it was OK? And yeah. something has to change about it. And so when they're saying Black Lives Matter, what we're saying is this is no longer acceptable. We're not accepting dysfunction. This is dysfunctional. As a nation, it is it is inhumane 
Let's call it what it really is. This is inhumane. You will cry over a dog getting shot in the street and then you will justify a person getting gunned down? No, it's inhumane and the new generation is not having it and I am absolutely proud of them. And when we yeah. talk about All Lives Matter, what it does is it dismisses the dysfunction that black lives are experiencing. It is, And I feel like it comes back and, it, and it's like a bigger story of like, things will come back to normal. But like right. the whole point is we don't want normal anymore. Right. We want to fix all this stuff. Right. It's it's Try like having a, it's like having a block of houses. So like I I live in a neighborhood where it's like brownstone houses. They're row houses that are all kind of stuck together, right? So you have this, you know, huge row of houses and it is like the house in the middle is on fire. And the fire department comes and they start working on everything instead of working on the house that is on fire. That is what the difference is when you're saying all lives matter. Um, it silences and it hinders the resources from being. So if, if we're saying all the houses matter when middle house is the one on fire, right? Then yeah. now I'm spreading my resources across all of this. So I'm not able to put my resources and my energy and my effort into putting this fire out. So when we're saying black lives matter, what we're saying is that, and they matter too. So when you say all lives matter, you're, you're dismissing what the matter really is at hand. Yeah. And I, and I feel like another, another argument that I feel like I hear people making this, this is a bad argument, but <laughs> the fear, the fear that, um, you know, like as we let people like rise up socially, it hurts the other people that are already on the top. And it's like, like I'm a I'm a straight white male. Mm -hmm. Like if anybody is given the benefit of the <laughs> doubt, like it's this guy. Right. I know that. And what and what we should be asking is like, I it's not that I don't want this and I don't want other people to like I think everybody should be elevated. Right. Like everybody should get the benefit of the doubt. Right. Or everybody should be treated as criminals whatever like everybody should be like let's just let's just assume everybody's awesome and to see how that does for the world's trauma right exactly um exactly it, it's an uneven playing field and then yeah and then if the playing field was even would you take your own advice that becomes the question if the playing field was even, if black people were given reparations, because I feel like reparations would be a huge um, part of restoring um, the restorative uh, piece of restoring where we are. I also think that we have to rewrite some laws and rewrite our structures. Um, and so if we were all given those same things, if we were all operating off of a constitution that looked at all of us as human beings and was what was built to put all of us on the same level, if we were all starting at the same place when it comes to, you know, our income, our, you know, what I'm saying our resources, our access to resources, if we were all on that same place, 
Now you got to take the same advice that you've been giving me for 4,000 years, which is if you just do this, if you just do that, if you just do that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, black people have to pull themselves up by the, the bootstrap or you might not really remember this because you were probably young. You know, you guys had affirmative action. Woo, 10 years of you guys giving us preferential um, thought towards hiring us when let's be honest, if you look at the statistics, Black women are the most educated group of people in the entire United States. All right. So if we're the most educated, why are we not represented in C-suite positions? If, if we're the most you're, educated, because you're working harder, faster, and longer, exactly. For less. So, 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 tell me again. Like, I could pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I think, and this was something that even it was a misconception that I know I had for a very long time, which was that the thought that, well, if I could just attain a certain level of wealth or a certain level of money, then that would eliminate or mitigate the amount of racism that I experienced in America. And so you have this mindset that you taste the money, but Oprah experiences racism. You, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it doesn't, racism hits you no matter what you're, it's not the same thing yeah. as classism. Yeah. And I think sometimes people miss that and they're like, well, white people have it hard too. Or there are white people who are poor or experience poverty. You're absolutely right. But they're not experiencing those things because of the color of their skin. That's the yeah. difference. Yeah. And and again, that's that's uh your mind telling you if I can just if I can just right. meanwhile you're doing everything you can to live in the world that wasn't made for you, following all the rules that other people set for you. Right. And it's not fair. Right. I mean, think about it. I, <laughs> like, I feel like it's not fair. It, Come on. That's, and that's exactly how we feel. It's not fair. And it's, it's frustrating. Like, I, yeah. I manage millions of dollars. And we're, you, we're talking like hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every day at work I manage. You know, I, 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 I operate my own company. I have a six-figure six, six salary from my corporate job plus what I make in my company. Right? And... I still go down to the Walgreens and get followed by the girl who makes $12 an hour. It is not a class issue. No. It's not a class issue at all. Mm. Uh, and, and I giggle when it happens because I'm just like, you work at Walgreens. Nothing wrong with working at Walgreens. But like, seriously, you're following me and you're working at Walgreens. It's not like, like do you know who I am? Like, <laughs> do you know all the steps that I followed to get here? Exactly. And, and not even <laughs> just that. It's like you. It, it's not like it's not like you are working in Congress and then you're stereotyping me. Like you, everyday regular schmegger, just like everybody else. But yeah. yeah. Based on what I look like, you've made a decision of what I'm capable of. And they've and they decided. Whether it's consciously or subconsciously, superiority. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the problem. Exactly. And, you know, even when we look at, like, especially with the race, the injustice of, like, police, we talk about the police brutality and things like that. Like, even I think about, um, for lack of better words, the Karen in the park who called the police on the guy oh. in um, Central Park. Was that the dog one? Yes. Or something? I, I cannot. Oh my God. I can't tell you how many times, like, 
I've been like, ooh, let me turn my radio down so I, so nobody calls the cops on me. Let me not talk loud. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, so I work hard to get into this nice neighborhood, but now I'm in this nice neighborhood and I'm like, shoot, my family, we loud. Mm-hmm. We're not criminals, but we are loud. <laughs> you know, we get to having a good time and, you know, and no one, no one says anything when it's our white counterparts. You know what I mean? We we get to get a little rowdy. Cops get called. Cops get called. I can go left really right. I can remember when I worked in Georgia, my other counterparts never could understand the fact that I always took the main highways. If you ever notice, you know, even when you and I work together, I always left during the day. You mm. never, ever, ever yeah. had me driving, uh, would see me driving late at night. Those are things that my white counterparts never even had to freaking consider. Because I'm no. like, well, what if something happened to my car? I'm not getting shot out here. Things that they've never had to consider. Those are conversations like, did your parents ever have a talk with you about how to carry yourself if you come in contact with the police? Absolutely not. And this is a conversation that we usually start having with our kids in late elementary, sometimes earlier than that, depending on how fast they've developed, especially like with our boys, with our boys, you know, especially if our boys are big, you have to have their conversation early because, you know, by 12, 13, sometimes people look at them as black men. And so they're not, you know, in our eyes, they're our cute babies, but that's not the way the world perceives them. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, just that's, that's another, another way that like my eyes have started to be opened over the past couple of weeks is like all the all the things that I've never had to think about that you're thinking about or is in the back of your mind all the time. And I've seen so many examples of things where like it starts one way and I'm like, I don't, it's weird that he's doing it like that. And then they explain it. And I'm like, oh, my God, of course, of course, you're like there's a um, uh, one of the football players at Auburn University. I like I follow him on Twitter <laughs> and he was talking about like how he's always wearing his Auburn gear and, and he's like, everybody always comes up and like, Oh, you must really love football. You love your team. And he's like, no, I'm worried if I don't wear this gear, people will see me as less than. Yeah. Like I, I turn into the thug. Yeah. It it, it softens the, um, it, 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 it sometimes softens it. I, I, when I, I can remember being a young girl, I was 17 when I went to the military one of the first things that they taught me when I got to my base, once I was at, I was in, you know, I was in Texas. And so I was in West Texas on top of that. And the first thing that I was taught was if you get pulled over for speeding or something like that, always put your military ID and you don't have your uniform on, always put your military ID on top of your regular ID. Those are things that my white servicemen didn't have to really necessarily consider, but Knowing that I was a veteran, sometimes it kind of softened the blow. Like you learn, you learn how to almost like prove your worth. Not even no, it's not a prove your worth. It is a fly under the radar. It, it, it's a it's a let me walk quiet so that I'm not disturbing anyone else. But I but you know, and it, it's like I said, I don't have another word for it. But it is exhausting. It is exhausting to walk through life that way. It is exhausting to think about, you know, just 
at all times to be thinking about that. It is exhausting when my nephew walks out the door. I'm concerned about, is he going to get, you know what I'm saying? Is he going to come back okay? Not because he got in a wreck or something like that, but is he going to come back okay just doing everyday regular things? Mm. You know, my nephew wants to protest right now. He's at Georgia State, so he's downtown in the middle of everything by default. He's getting yeah. education. He's down there by default. And we're, you know, we're like going to get him and, you know, go go to your mom's house for a little bit um, because I don't want you to get caught up. And even some of the white people who are going to protest are not even lumped into that. Right. So right. even even some of the white ones that are busting windows out. They're not, they don't think about that. Their parents aren't saying, ooh, don't go down there because they might mix you up. But we're, we're not worried about it. Right. They're just. And that's the problem. It, right. And so so those are the thought patterns that are constantly having to go and move over and over and over again. And people are tired of it. I'm tired of it. And I just got into it. It's like, I just got here and I don't want to be here, but I have to be here. And, and, and I want to be here. And that's why I think that, you know, people don't, you know, understand the outrage. But, you know, they don't understand the outrage because they haven't had to walk in those shoes. But I will say, you know, the only... By no means am I equating them. But what I'm saying is a good example of me trying to understand what it feels like from a white person's perspective is I think about me being a straight woman. Right. And um, I can remember I was I'm a straight Christian woman. I had very conservative views. If you would have met me 10, 15 years ago, I'd extremely conservative, bigoted. Yeah. Let's tell the truth. They were conservative, yeah. bigoted, religious views of the yeah. gay community. That was yeah. what oh, it was. I think of myself in high school and I I'm terrified. Like I the stuff the stuff I would think just so wrong. And, you're and, conditioned. Right. And you think you're right. And, and I yeah. remember like and I and I didn't mean anything, you know, I didn't mean any harm by it. You know, I I wanted what I thought was best for this community of people. And then I began to start building relationships with mm -hmm. people who did not look like me, did not love like me. And when I started building relationships with these people who did not love like me, um, I started I, you know, I realized that I was wrong. And so when I was faced with truth. And that the truth that I had been holding on to was error and that there was a truth that I needed to embrace. I had to let go of those biases. So I had to first when I came and realized, OK, you're being bigoted. You are not operating in love. I don't care if you say this is for the sake of the Bible or not. This is not the finished work of the cross and you are not operating as a believer. And so, first of all, you got to repent. So when those things begin to come to me and I begin to realize the injustice and the bigotry and the things that that I was spewing in error, mm -hmm. I had to first repent. I had to repent to God. I had to repent to those people and say, you know, to my friends and to the people I was talking to and say, look, I handled you wrong. I didn't treat you right. 
And I apologize for where I judged you and mistreated you and was biased against you. That's a hard thing to do, but you have to do that when you realize that you have perpetuated inequality and injustice. So that was my first step. And then after that, it was asking for permission to be to be inquisitive and to learn. And I got, you know, and so my friends that were, you know, in the LGBT plus community, can I ask you questions when I don't understand? And I gave them permission. Here was the biggest thing, though. I gave them permission to check me. If I'm being bigoted, if what I'm saying is biased, if I am off, I'm giving you permission to check me, call me out and educate me so I can get right. I gave them permission to do that. And then when they would say, we don't say that, that that's not a term that we utilize. You know, hey, you're perpetuating a stereotype, whatever those things were. I would go, okay. And I would hear him. I would listen. I would take it in. I would sit in it. And then I would change. Yeah. And then I would say, hey, if I if I say this again, call me out. Don't don't let me in it. But then I also had to take it to the next level. So first I repented. Then I opened myself up um, to build relationships. So I repented. I build relationships where I can begin to have a safe place to learn, explore, ask questions. Then I give them the I I, I give that under um that you know what I'm saying that that I give that I give them an outlet to then be able to hold me accountable for making change because repentance isn't saying I'm sorry. Repentance is a changed behavior. And so yeah. I give them permission to correct me when my behavior has not aligned with my repentance. And then from there, I also have a responsibility. So then I have a responsibility. I cannot put all the bearings on that community to teach me everything, show me everything and things like that, then I have a responsibility to study, to learn, to get to know things, to read a book or whatever I need to do so that I can become an ally, an advocate and someone who helps move forward. And that's what we're asking and not even what we're asking. That's what we're demanding of um, the white community. Yeah, Repentance has changed. It is not. I'm sorry that happened. No, that's not repentance. The word We're sorry too hasn't changed anything about it. Exactly. Repentance means to bring it back to its original state. And the original state is that we were all man. So if over time you deduced us to animals and because that's what we were in property. If you're repenting, that means that you're going to bring us back to the original state in which God brought us to, which puts us on an equal playing foot. That's the finished work of the cross. And as a believer, if, if, if you're missing that piece, you're, you're missing the finished work of the cross. Yeah. And, and so I guess equating it to what's happening now, I definitely feel like in all the conversations that I've had with people, a lot of people are in that turning the corner repentant mm-hmm. stage, um, which is great. Um, 
we don't really have to get into like politics on here. I feel like our nation isn't necessarily leading us through this. I think we're kind of leading ourselves through it. We absolutely are. <laughs> um, which in a lot of ways is more inspiring, but also sad. Um, but, but I see people in, in communities, in a lot of communities, cause you know, like I live here, I used to live in other places, like in a lot of different places, they're taking this on themselves and trying to figure out how they fix it. Right. Because it is broken. Right. Right. It, 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 it is broken. And, and I think that God has a sense of humor. This is just my own personal opinion. Um, I think that God has a sense of humor because he gave us a black president who couldn't fix it. Then he gave us a white president who's kind of really special. And he, he, and he has no no earthly um, plan on fixing it. But I, So here's the thing. And, and this is interesting when people talk about this. The, the Bible talks about that all authority comes from God. I believe that there was purpose in Obama being president. And I believe that there's purpose in Trump being president. And, and, and that's taking the politics out of it. I believe that God had purpose in it. I believe that if you really think about it, before Obama got into office, we had accepted that we had progressed really far. Think mm. about it. We, yeah. we had kind of yeah. accepted, like, you know, of course, as a black community, we always in the back of head, you know, racism is there. But I will say overarchingly as a nation, we would have said that we have come so far, you know. Um, or we at least figured out how to quiet the waves where nobody was right, saying anything, right? Yeah. And then when Obama went into office, you know, there was this great sense of pride in the beginning for some people, but then there was this great sense of outrage. And what I feel like Obama's presidency did is Obama's presidency ripped the covers off of the fact that we were not as unified and kumbaya-ish as we thought we were. It, I mean, that was clear the moment he got elected. Right. It, it, it pulled the covers off and it, it, it was the way it was. It was a it was right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that. It opened the door. I think I think that they they have opened the door to change, and I think that when Trump got in or in, into office, it just it heated up the fire. Because guess what? You cannot when the fire when when the fire is up, what what is impure comes to the top. So like when you look at like gold and things like that, it has to go over the fire, and then the impurities come to the top, and then you can take the top off, right? right. And so we've had to have the fire up and so i believe that god has allowed things to kind of boil up so that he could pull it up the bible talks about the parable of the of the sower right and i love that where he talks about how an enemy has done this that you know that he went in at night and he sowed tear among the wheat and you know they're like well shoot let's just get the tear out and the response is nope let the wheat grow up with the tear and at an appointed time we will come and we will pull out the tear. We will gather it. We will burn it hmm. and destroy it. And so I believe we came out of a season where the wheat and the tear were going up and we are in gathering and burning in season. Hmm. 
And sometimes, certainly, and sometimes things, <laughs> and, and we don't like to admit that, but sometimes when we look at it, what is happening, things that are happening in the natural realm are usually a reflection of what is happening in the spiritual realm. So, spiritually, God is saying that the spirit of racism, I'm pulling that tear out, I am binding it together, and I am burning it up. And we are seeing a physical manifestation of the fire. Yeah. Very physical. It's, it's uncomfortable, but it's still the word. Absolutely. Wow. That's a good analogy. Um, okay. So I, I'm going to ask you one more question okay. and then we'll, and then we'll call it for this one. Uh, but there's two parts. Uh, so, and this one's a little more practical. Okay. Uh, so how, how do you suggest that I or we speak into the hearts of people who feel like this might be a smaller issue and that it doesn't deserve as much attention right now as it's getting, but doing it in a way that doesn't start an argument with them? Because I think a lot of people now that don't understand the scope of this get very defensive because this is a very radical time. And this is very much not the normal that a lot of people grew up with. So I don't know what, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? If I didn't ramble too much. No, you're good. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to decide how I want to answer, but I'm just going to give you my true honest as if, That's I, what I, want. As, as if I was sitting with my sister, we are sick and tired of having to educate, coddle and make people feel comfortable. So if you can't see that it is a big deal, if you can't see that it is important, if you can't see that humans should be treated as human and, and, and that doesn't disgust you or disdain you, and you don't think that it's a big deal because you live in your bubble world and you are happy and you are okay, then go live in your happy world. Because at this point, I don't have the energy to educate you anymore. That's that. And, and I think that is where many of us are at. We've been trying yeah. to educate you for years. I, I'm not going to educate you. I, I, I'm at the point now, I ain't arguing. The Bible said don't argue, don't argue with fools. So I ain't arguing <laughs> yeah. with fools in this season. Like we had the time for the civil discussion. Exactly. And so at this point, okay. if you don't get it, I have to let God deal with you in your time and your season. The Bible says that, um, the Bible says that um, it's not my word like a hammer. It breaks up the fallow ground. You can't make an impartation into someone's heart if their heart is filled with stone. And so it's not my responsibility to break your stone. And so those people, for me as a believer, I got to turn you over to God because you can't get my energy. My energy needs to be available for solutions, for change, for moving forward. That's where all my energy goes now. It no longer, and it used to, it no longer goes to trying to make you see the plight. At this point, it's captured on yeah. video. You you can go and and do a YouTube the search. The resources are exactly. there. I can send you some lists if that's what you want. But my energy is reserved for progress. And then I have yeah. to turn you over to God. And then my prayer becomes in my secret place. Lord, the ones who don't see it, the ones that don't feel it, God, break up their heart. That That's where the spiritual fight comes in. And we've gotten it kind of twisted because we want to live in this kumbaya world where that's not how we really function with it, right? We just want to be able to pray and say, Lord, let us be unified. And then we just go on about our day and keep living our life the way we want. That's not what we're doing. So when I get into prayer, I turn those minds and those hearts over to God. And I say, God, that's your business. 
Now, what's my assignment in leading change? Let me go do that and let me let you handle what you got to handle. And so I think we've taken on false responsibilities. I'm glad you said that. I think you're right. I think I think the time for. Yeah, yeah. I think people have to start owning up to what they've been telling themselves. And that's where the change is for, for a lot of people. You can't you can't out logic somebody who whose heart is hardened. Yeah, I guess you, if you, you want to put you it like that. You, 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 I, I, I wish, but you can't. I mean, yeah, you know, there were people who told me you, you, you're being real religious and judgmental about, you know, certain things in the past. And I didn't get it. But guess what? Somebody was praying over me. Somebody was crying out that God would change my heart. And one day I woke up to the truth that, yo, the way you perceive people and treat people does not line up with the word of God. And you hiding behind the cloak of the Bible and judging people and not loving them to life is, is not what your stance should be as a believer. That was a tough pill to swallow, to be able to look in the mirror and say, girl, you wrong. You did yeah. wrong. Yeah. But once you hear that, you got to do the work and it's a continual work. It's not something that you make a decision to do and you don't walk away from. It's like a person losing weight, right? Like mm-hmm. you got to look in the mirror and go, girl, you, you don't let yourself go. And then, you know, you say, yeah, you're right. I'm going to make a change. And you don't just say, I'm going to lose weight and that's it. You got to do the work and you have to check in with yourself Constantly to make sure you're still doing the work to make sure that you lose the weight or maintain the change. Any change is like that. There has to be check-ins. There has to be continual progress. Absolutely. Well, I hope and I pray that I personally will continue doing the work. And I hope that this, I hope and pray that this nation will continue doing the work. Um, and I'm really glad that we got to talk today. Yes, me too. I was honestly feeling really overwhelmed earlier today. And I feel like talking to you is kind of like giving me hope, my hope back. Yay! I love yeah. it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of an interesting segue because we're next, next time or next week. I don't know when the next one will be published or whatever, but uh, we're going to talk about how faith kind of is a huge part of this. Probably the biggest part of this. Yes. Um, so for everybody that listened, uh, we really appreciate you being here for being change makers in your society and your circle of influence. Um, we love you and we support you in this difficult time that I am dealing with and that we're all dealing with. Um, and we hope you'll join us, uh, probably next week. All right. Bye.